This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Please take a moment and check out my YouTube and Rumble channels, Strange Planet. All right. For the next two hours, an investigation into the earliest forms of shamanism and sacred sites as connections to extraterrestrial intelligence from Gobekli, Gobek, from Gobekli Tepe in Turkey to the Egyptian pyramids, from the stone circles of Europe to the mound complexes of the Americas. Andrew Collins and my guest tonight Gregory L. Little, show how again and again our ancestors built permanent sites of ceremonial activity where geomagnetic and gravitational anomalies have been recorded. They investigate how the earliest forms of animism and shamanism began at sites like the Denisova Cave in the Altai Mountains of Siberia and the Kasim Cave in Israel more than 400,000 years ago. They explain how shamanistic or shamanic shamanic rituals and altered states of consciousness combine with the natural forces of the earth to create portals for contact with otherworldly realms. In other words, the gods of our ancestors were the result of an interaction between human consciousness and trans-dimensional intelligence. And uh, the book is Origins of the Gods, Kasim Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligence. Co-authors Andrew Collins, and again, my guest tonight, Gregory L. Little. He is the author of more than 30 books, including Denisovan Origins, co-authored with Andrew. His research has been featured on the National Geographic Channel, MSNBC Discovery, and the History Channel. He lives in Memphis, Tennessee. Gregory, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Uh, Despite uh, everything happening in the world and here, I'm doing just fine. Hope you're well, too. And I hope your listeners are well. And hello, everyone. Uh, Glad to be here. Just going to be be on Earth. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Just holding up uh, the book there for the uh, those of you on the YouTube and the Rumble uh, channels, Origins of the Gods. And um, 
Delighted to have you here. Forward by Eric Von Donneken. That's quite a coup. Tell me about how uh, Eric became involved in this program, uh, this uh, this project. Well, uh, the book itself is actually sort of a. Our idea was to try and explain the entire field of the paranormal, which included, of course, UFOs, abductions, contactees in the 50s and 60s. Uh, We wanted to explain ancient alien reports, things like ancient angels. Uh, We wanted to account for the fairies of England and the jinn of the Muslim world, the Native American little people. Um, and I, excuse, I'll, I'll say this now, I'll say Native American real often. I mean, North, all of North America, South America, Central America. And I know in Canada, you call them the first peoples. Uh, that is, I think that's the legal name, correct? In Canada, first peoples? Uh, first peoples, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Or indigenous or indigenous peoples. Sure. Okay. First nations. Yes. Here we say uh, just Native American. Uh, but anyway, we wanted to account for all that. So, of course, Andrew knows Eric Vandonikin, and Andrew uh, appears on the show Ancient Aliens pretty often. And so in the course of doing this, both of us realized that this is something that Vandonikin has actually hinted about from time to time. So he was sent the manuscript of the book, uh, reviewed it, and said, yeah, he'd love to write uh, an introduction. It's, I think, two pages, two and a half pages, something like that. But what he really said is he loves the different ways that people try to account for ancient reports and ancient aliens, which uh, Andrew and I both believe that there probably have been visitations by ancient aliens. Absolutely. Uh, And we can get into why here in a while. But anyway, he liked it and he agreed to write the introduction to it. And we're very, we're very happy about it. And I think what you'll see on, um, maybe the next season of Ancient Aliens, and, and certainly on the, the William Shatner show, The Unexplained, you'll see them talking about this book uh, fairly soon, because it is a very, very different take on the phenomenon, on all of the paranormal. So when we're talking about a shamanic uh, tradition of communication with, and I guess we need to define our terms because we could talk about ultra terrestrials. We could talk about interdimensionals. We could talk about uh, trans dimensionals. Uh, let's let's start with just uh, kind of ex- uh, defining terms here. What do we mean by ultra dimensionals, interdimensionals, trans dimensionals? Well, that's that. <laughs> the whole idea of dimensions, and we live in a four dimensional world. Uh, physically, it's three dimensions. We have length and width and depth. And then time is the fourth dimension. So interdimensional would be something that has more than four dimensions or four, yeah, four dimensions, since time really is a dimension. And it intrudes in this world from time to time. Uh, There are, it could be any number of dimensions. That's why Andrew in the book calls them N beings that we really don't have a number for them. I call them time beings, spelled T-I-I-M-E, which we can get into at some point. we got lots of time, so we'll get into that. Uh, but it, all the dimensional stuff, uh, those terms, it all means that they're either crossing from one dimension to another. One dimension intrudes in another. Uh, interdimensional pretty much means the same thing. They're moving between dimensions. Uh, and I don't think, I think in my half of the book, I don't think I mentioned uh, interdimensional or transdimensional one time. Uh, I pretty much left it up to Andrew to do almost all of the 
physics in the book. I really focused on Native American shamanic beliefs and UFOs and people like Joan of Arc and Edgar Cayce, which needed to be explained in this oddly. I mean, we pulled so many things together. Some of the reviewers called it a theory of everything. Yeah, Yeah, but it's not just one explanation. There are multiple things going on, and that's what's confused people for years. Well, 50, 60 years it's been. So there's too many things going on, and people are looking for one solution, and there's not just one solution. Uh, And in in the book, uh, I think it's in chapter three, I use an example of a massive jigsaw puzzle. And what what I mean by that is this. If you can imagine the paranormal as a huge jigsaw puzzle that extends for miles and miles and miles. You can't see the whole thing. What happens is people get involved in one little area, the jigsaw puzzle, and then they might find a piece that fits and go, Eureka, I have solved it. But they haven't solved the whole puzzle. They've only solved one little piece of it because it is so vast and so big, and it incorporates a number of different explanatory mechanisms in it. So there's several things that really explain it all. For example, the the Tic Tacs, the U.S. Navy's recent reports of UFOs, that is a different explanation than you will find for the shamanic things. Uh, When I say shamanic things, Native American populations have forever interacted with a force that they call a spiritual force. And and again, we'll get into that, too. But they've interacted with a spiritual force that they say physically manifests from time to time. It's always a temporary manifestation, but that is a different thing, different explanation for that as to what's going on with the Navy's films, most of them are infrared films of objects that they can't explain, like the Tic Tac. Right. So there's different things going on here, many different things. All right. Well, let's let's talk about uh, shamanism and tell me a little bit about the, or I know this is in, uh, in Andrew's uh, chapters, but tell me a little bit about the origin of shamanism. Well, the origin of it, we don't really know the origin. I don't think anybody ever will. What we do know is that it goes back. This is what Andrew did in in the very beginning of his half of the book. I wrote the first half. And in the first half, I ended by saying that this, that the shamanic practices where they have tried to interact with whatever these forces are, these practices have been going on a long, long time, a lot longer than anybody has ever suspected. So then at the beginning of Andrew's half of the book, Andrew goes to Israel and he goes to a place called Kesem Cave. And it is uh, outside Tel Aviv. I think it's like 15 miles outside. Or it might be kilometers outside of Tel Aviv, uh, Israel. And he meets, he met with the archaeologists that did the discovery in this cave. Uh, He tells the story about how the cave was discovered. It was actually discovered with road construction. Uh, They were digging, building a new road out of Tel Aviv, and they hit this uh, formation that suddenly opened up. Uh, and they realize this is a cave and a whole bunch of bones came out, loads and loads of bones. So they wound up because of the they have the same legalities over there as we have here. 
And that is when you find archaeological remains, you have to notify the authorities. They come and see if it's anything of any importance. And as it turned out, it was something of great importance. So what they did is they started excavating it. They wound up finding loads. And I mean, just an incredible amount of material, all of which directly links to shamanistic processes. Uh, they found ritualistic bones like swan feathers, which is a very big deal. Swan feathers have always been known in shamanism to be a, a key component to their rituals. And they wound up dating this cave to 400,000 years ago. 400. That's what I mean. It's a lot older than anybody oh. thinks. So it's going back actually to a time when they weren't even sure that people like us, Homo sapiens sapiens, were even in the Middle East 400,000 years ago. Remember the out of Africa theory initially says that it's like 200,000 years ago, humans started going out of Africa and moving around. Uh, so it, and they know that it's also not Homo sapiens sapiens anyway. There's a different branch of humanity, some of our old, old ancestors uh, on the human human evolutionary branch. So that's that's the story there. It goes back at least 400,000 years. Had to go back further than that, absolutely. And we don't know how far. One of the things that I've done uh, here in the Americas is look at the dating. And we know that uh, people in the Americas, and we know they were here a lot longer than what mainstream archaeology tells us. Uh, in Canada, for example, I know there was an archaeologist who was almost destroyed uh, by skeptics, because he said people had been there for almost 30,000 years, which is now known to be pretty much true. And then in South America, it goes back much further. So everything is a lot older than anybody ever thought. And that's a really big deal. Gregory Little is my guest, co-author of Origins of the Gods, Kesem Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences, along with uh, co-author Andrew Collins. Uh, so these locations where this uh, communication was taking place uh, between indigenous people, native people, and these transdimensionals, what are the, what are the, is there a common denominator of all these locations, whether we're talking about Gobekli, the pyramids, uh, well, skinwalkers, Kesem Cave? Yeah, there, there is one commonality. The, Participants in these rituals almost always grounded themselves. And when I use the term grounded, I mean physically grounded. They would go into deep earth like in caves. Uh, some of the rituals like the Cheyenne in the uh, northwest of the United States, like in Wyoming uh, and in the, the Dakotas, the Cheyenne, when they performed their rituals, even in flat land, they would start by making a large sacred circle. They would re physically remove the sod from the surface. So you're not stepping on plant. You don't want to step on grass or plant. So they physically remove the sod and expose the soil. And they would actually perform rituals by putting their bare feet in the soil. It's the same thing that went on in the Southwest. If you know anything about all the kivas, spelled K-I-V-A, the kivas in the Southwest, they're circular enclosures that actually go down into the earth. Some, some of them go down 15, 20 feet into the earth. And then people would sit around in a circle, but it's all earth. It's, it's earth. 
and they would dirt. They would literally ground ground themselves in the dirt. And there were reasons for that. Uh, I think it has to do. Well, not, let me let me answer the rest of your question then quickly. Uh, it is that um, there are geological formations that make the rituals more powerful and the geological configurations can naturally form themselves into what Andrew likes to call portals or window areas where phenomena occurs over and over. And we know those, we know those exist because that's the places where they often built sacred sites. Uh, and they, they knew that that site was special. Uh, people like Paul Devereaux in England found many, many years ago in the 1980s, they found that sacred sites tended to have uh, high radiation levels, gravitational anomalies. Uh, and one of the things I know uh, is that a lot of these sites have very stable electromagnetic characteristics. Uh, stable electromagnetic characteristics appear to be a really important factor in being able to contact and interact with these other forces, which I call spiritual forces because that's what Native Americans called them. Why would these transdimensionals require those particular ingredients in order to facilitate conversation or communication? They don't require them. In order for us to interact with them, we have to do something in order for the interaction to be what I would call harmonious or something that would perhaps give you more balance in your life. You have to be mentally prepared and you have to do special things. They, the, the whole idea here is that these entities, these forces come on their own anyway. Uh, and the other, they will come, but when they come on their own, they tend to bring disorder or, or disharmony. In other words, they lie. That's the, that's the simple way to put it. You'll have, for example, um, the 1950s contactees, loads and loads of stories. There's 30, 40 of them all together, probably more than that, but the most famous ones, there were 30 or 40. So what, what happened with them is they'd be outside, they'd be in a desert, they'd be somewhere, and suddenly a flying saucer landed in front of them, and some being would walk out and say something like, uh, I'm from Venus. We're here because we don't want you to destroy the world with your nuclear weapons. Fine. Others would land and say, oh, we're from the planet Mars or we're from Mercury or we live on the moon, uh, which is what I mean. They lie. Native Americans talked about the same thing. They interacted with these forces all the time and they called them a trickster. A trickster. Right. Right. That That's is the thing I always that, associated with things like the raven or the fox. Absolutely. Animal tricksters are what what they're but well, Native Americans have two different types of knowledge and information. Uh, so one type are basically commonplace myths, children's stories. Those involve animals. Those involved, they have a creation story about a husband and a wife up in the clouds and a hole appears in the ground. And the wife actually shoves the husband through and then she goes down. There's a lot of stories like that. And they have lots of stories of animals. Uh, almost all of those commonplace myths, uh, they don't give the sacred information. And those are stories for children. They are stories to tell at the campfire. They're stories to impart morals, uh, right and wrong, that kind of stuff, and also to just entertain. Sacred knowledge is a different thing, and the sacred knowledge is what we really tried to focus on in the book.
So why would they come? We have about, uh, let's see, just over a minute here Yeah. before we break. Gregory Little, co-author of Origins of the Gods. Why would they come intending to deceive? It's a test. That's what the trickster is. The trickster is a test. These are not, these are not entities like uh, some dude, some whatever, that comes down and, you know, goes to an unwitting uh, participant in the thing or a percipient and just lying to them. These are tests. That's what it is. It's a spiritual test, at least from the Native American perspective. What we're dealing with with tricksters is a spiritual test. Joan of Arc had the same thing happen to her. Edgar Casey, the most famous psychic in America, had the same thing happen to him. And the contactees had the same thing happen to them, as did probably most abductees, too. To this uh, it day, gets, still happening, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So they're, they're doing what they do. These things aren't good or evil. They simply do what they do, and the react, what, what determines the outcome is us. The person who's interacting with them is the person who determines what the outcome of it is. That sounds kind of weird, I know, uh, but that's it. Gregory Little, co-author of Origins of the Gods with a foreword by Eric Von Daniken, and the uh, co-author, uh, Andrew Collins, who is in uh, Great Britain, where it's very, very early in the morning, and uh, hopefully he's fast asleep. So, Gregory, um, one of the other uh, aspects, I think, that was that was needed for this communication between these transdimensionals and uh, the indigenous peoples was plasma. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, uh, it's not, it's not a necessary component. I think, uh, I think to, to get to that point, what I'd like to do is, is tell the native American creation story, the real creation story, the sacred one. And that will lead us straight into plasma. Okay. Um, Plasma is not the answer to it all. Plasma is a medium uh, that is being utilized. It's not necessarily the entities themselves. So with the Native American creation story, like I, like I said in the last segment, there are, there are children's stories or commonplace myths and sacred knowledge. The sacred knowledge is really difficult to find and get a hold of. It exists. You have to do a huge amount of work to get to it and find it, and then you got to understand it. So you got to know a lot of the terminology. Well, let me just simplify it all. So in the beginning, what, what Native Americans tell us is that there was a singularity. That's all that exists in the very beginning. Now, it's going to sound like the Big Bang, and people are going to say, oh, they were influenced by uh, modern physics. And the answer to that is no, they were not. Oh, the term, That's where yeah, I was going. <laughs> yeah, the, the, term, the term singularity is used in, in the ethnography books that describe this belief system, uh, because what they say is at the very beginning, when there was nothing but just this one point of energy. And this point of energy was pure spiritual energy. And now they would, they would probably call it the great spirit today. That's the term that they'd probably use, and that's fine. But it was one point of, of spiritual energy. And then as to what happened and what created everything, where it all started, for reasons that they say are unexplainable, 
this this singularity had some kind of rudimentary or inexplicable consciousness and a purpose, it began to churn. That was their word too, churn, like churning. It churned within itself. And when it did that, it created two distinct forces, two distinct spiritual forces. And these two forces are kind of like a yin-yang symbol where you get two such two two equally sized portions making up a circle and they kind of rotate around. Of course, you can't have a singularity that has two parts. It's a contradiction in terms. So the moment the singularity began the churning and formed these two forces, it expanded. And when it expanded, it created a three-part universe. The Zuni tribe, Zunis, the Zuni tribe, which is the oldest of the ancestral Puebloans that we know of, the Zuni tribe called it a container of all, that it started out as a small container of all, of pure spiritual energy, and that for its own reasons, it thought outward. It just thought outward. Now, these are really old concepts, long before the Big Bang was ever proposed by physics. Physics had no idea. Very complex. Very complex. All right. So the next point of this, when it it formed the three-part universe, it formed what they call an upper world, which had its own purpose, its own power, and its own representatives, and a lower world which had its own purpose and power and representatives and a middle world. The middle world is the physical universe. Earth is where we are. So we'll talk about the earth in the children's stories. You'll see in the children's stories, they'll say, Oh, the earth is like a big bowl. And there are four ropes coming down that attach to something (laughs) that hold the earth here, or maybe it's on a turtle's back or something. Those are all kids stories. That's what they are. But they, they knew that, there were other things out there. So the physical world, in their point of view, is a double-sided mirror, double-sided mirror that allows a three-dimensional interaction, or actually four dimensions when you add time, a a three-dimensional interaction sphere for the upper world powers and the lower world powers. So the the idea of the mirror is Earth and the physical universe reflects the upper world power and the lower world power. So the upper world power is called the spirit of order or the spirit of creation. Order is is the movements of the sun, the, the consistent movements, predictable movements of the sun, the predictable movements of the moon. Uh, also, the seasons are part of that. There's there's a lot of predictability and all that. And in addition, it is creation. It means that this upper world allows things to be created continually. What's it created from? Well, spiritual energy. Because remember, everything started out as spirit. Everything started out as spirit. So the physical world is made up of dirt, which is the most primordial spiritual entity that exists. Earth is the most primordial spiritual energy. So that's why they would build earthen geometric earthworks and earthen mounds and put them in certain shapes and configurations because it is primordial spiritual energy. Rocks are solidified spiritual energy. 
And they would use rocks and put rocks in very specific places, or they would erect stones, or they would go to places where there were natural formations with these solidified spiritual energy. Water is flowing spiritual energy. We also know that water moving through rocks creates electrical current. That is very well known. Crystals. Crystals are a type of purified solidified spiritual energy. And you can actually, and what they found is you can do things like crystals, like grind them in a leather pouch. If you do that in complete darkness, you'll see little balls of light come out. You will literally do that. The best experiment I've ever told people to do, and I have lots of people tell me, yeah, I did it and it worked. So I'd tell them, get two big crystals. I mean, as big as you can get, not, I mean, ones that you can hold in your hand, get a pair of gloves, Go into your bathroom, fill the tub two-thirds full of water, make sure it's nighttime, make sure it's totally dark in there. Put those gloves on, put those crystals down under the water and rub them together as hard as you can, and you will light up the room. That is true. That is true. The bigger the crystal is, the more light you will get. That is because the water is refracting the light that is coming off. And the light is act they're actually tiny plasmas that are being released by. So Native Americans use that in a lot of their rituals too. So, all right. So I've talked about the, the upper world power and I've talked about the middle world reflecting it in a lot of ways. And some of the creatures in the upper world interact on the physical earth because eagles, eagles represented the upper world because they're always soaring high, but they also land on the earth. So they are reflecting this upper world power. That's why Native Americans held them in such reverence. Swans, on the other hand, live uh, a go in that upper world, but they also land and float around on water. And water is the surface of the underworld and the lower power. The lower power is the spirit of disorder, disorder, chaos. Nature is filled with chaotic events. Nature is filled with dangerous events. Trees fall, storms come, there's drought, there's all kinds of things that happen, <clears throat> and the earth reflects all that. It is also the spirit of entropy. Entropy is, the, is, a, is a, it's a process in physics. All things are subject to entropy. It simply means that everything eventually degrades to whatever its most primordial element or component is. No matter what you do, everything eventually degrades <clears throat> to its primary, primordial beginning. Right. And All then towards decay. Absolutely. But then creation can take those things and do something else with it. So the earth is a place where these two forces constantly interplay with each other. They are constantly interplaying. Onto this physical world, we were sent human beings. And we were sent here with a purpose. First of all, we have the ability to understand and appreciate these two forces, the, the force of creation and the force of entropy. And secondly, we were sent here as a means to promote harmony and balance between those two forces. That's what the shaman said, that that's why we're here. And that meant that we had a purpose, a spiritual purpose that we had to fulfill. And how they fulfilled that spiritual purpose is through rituals. 
the rituals all had to be done. I mean, think about the ritual of the harvest that they did. We'll talk about some of the others, but they had to do a ritual of the harvest. Why did they do that? Well, they were celebrating, they were thanking the spiritual forces or whatever that, yes, we have the harvest, but they were also doing it to ensure that they would have good luck in the next year. This went on throughout the year. There were so many of these rituals that they performed. It's almost, well, we do the same thing in church and in modern churches, we do the same thing. So we were, were, you were giving us this wonderful summation of the the creation story of uh, indigenous peoples. Um, And this is leading us into uh, a discussion I had asked you about the role of plasma in communication with the uh, transdimensionals. So uh, carry on. Sure. Okay. So it was a necessity. The, the, the Native American shaman and the medicine people, which there were several different types of um, secret organizations within tribes, they still exist today. Uh, and they were tasked with interacting with these forces. Now, of course, there's, there are black magicians, or there are witches is what they would call them. Uh, and what the witches did is they interacted with the lower force powers. And it was usually to bring ill will upon someone. And once you did that, that was it. There was no returning to the higher level. So what shaman did is shaman learn uh, methods. This gets really complicated, but they learned a method to vibrate what I would call in the book, what I call in the book, a psychoid pull. And it's a pull that sticks through the earth and it physically points to the celestial north pull. Uh, and that when they did some of these rituals, they would physically get a, a pull and drive it into the ground that would point toward the North Pole Star. So they, they felt it a necessity to do this. When the shaman did some of these rituals, what they reported and what modern ones report is that there are physical manifestations absolute physical manifestations of spiritual entities that occur. Uh, There are different names for these entities, depending upon what tribe you interact with. They all have a slightly different name. Uh, The the Cheyenne called them the Mayan. Uh, They had some other ones that appeared too. Uh, They didn't say they were plasma forms, but they said they were pure energy, pure forming energy. And this, this kind of leads us to the question about plasma. How does plasma enter this? Well, for many years, uh, lots of scientists have studied the UFO field, lots of them. And you won't read about much of that in the UFO literature. You have to really dig to find it. Uh, and the, the most uh, unpopular theory ever is that plasma formations were the source of a lot of UFO reports, as well as plasma formations were the source of a lot of abduction and contactee reports, as well as things that Native Americans interacted with. And that, that in fact, is what the bulk of the book is, trying to explain exactly what that means. Uh, and we haven't even defined what a plasma is. We'll get, back, we'll get to that shortly. Uh, But the Native Americans had to interact with it. If they didn't, what they said is these forces, these spiritual forces, come on their own. Uh, 
And because they're appearing on the face of the earth, remember, the earth is an interaction zone for the upper world and the lower world all at the same time. So it always comes. You can always be deceived by these things. On one hand, you can always be deceived. On the other hand, you can always be led to a spiritual truth. So think about that. Every single time we interact with it, one either good or bad is the possibility. And so the Native Americans designed a ritualistic method, which they got from shaman in Siberia. That's actually demonstrated. We talk about that in the book, too, how that's been proven. And it goes back in Siberia, it goes back to at least 24, 30,000 years ago when they did this. Mm -hmm. So they tried to, to develop a way to ensure that these interactions that they had with these forms, whatever they are, these interactions were always beneficial to them rather than something that's negative. But here on the earth, when you interact with them, it can go either way. And it's up to you, up to the percipient, the person interacting with it, to determine which way it goes. So, in other words, they wanted to create more of a controlled setting. Is that the idea? Exactly. They believed they could control it. Exactly. And the formations that they made, the sacred sites they made, the way they made, I mean, um, that very quickly, they would often make a circular enclosure. Uh, maybe the circle would enclose one to, in some cases, 50 acres. So you're talking about a big circle. When I say a circle, the circle is on flat land, but it has an outer wall of earth, perfect circle with an outer wall that could be 15, 16 to 20 feet in height, but no way in and out. And the reason they would do that is when they would do the rituals in the center of the circle, which would literally bring forth these spiritual entities, that was done to confine the entity. If it had no way out, the entity could not get out, and it was it was to literally enclose it in that area, interact with it in that area. Almost There's, sounds like an Aleister Crowley binding ritual. That may be where Crowley got a lot of this from. Maybe he understood things that we uh, only now understand. All right. Another time out awaits. Gregory Little stays with us. Origins of the Gods, co-authored with uh, Andrew Collins. Forward by Eric Von Daniken. Back with more in a moment. of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Absolutely fascinating. I, I'm particularly taken with the, the complexity of the uh, indigenous creation stories. And uh, uh, now just realizing I feel like such a dope that the, that, uh, you know, these, these myths that are sort of uh, held out as, and we assume that this is the sum all of their knowledge, yet these were these were designed for the consumption of children, which I guess would be the rest of us, really. Meanwhile, they have all of this incredibly complex, arcane uh, knowledge. Um, who who instructed the the uh, the shamans, the indigenous uh, uh, people, 
to create these things in order to facilitate communication? Well, I'll tell you who they say instructed them. They say the entities did. It's just like the Zuni tribe uh, has. And the reason I focus, let me say why I focus so much on Native Americans. The Native American tribes, the ones in Canada, North America, South America, Central America, the Native American tribes are the only uh, indigenous people around the earth that we know of that pretty much were in isolation from other cultures for thousands of years. And in those thousands of years, they retained pretty much their, their pure belief system. So we know a lot more about Native American beliefs than we do, say, the people that built Stonehenge. Stonehenge, uh, we don't know anything about the people. I mean, we know very little. Uh, we know that they were using Stonehenge for astronomical observations and rituals, but that is about it, you know? I don't know what else to say about Stonehenge than that. Uh, it's an incredible structure, but we don't know that much because that civilization, all that knowledge was lost. That was lost. Now, Native Americans in, in all three of the continents here, well, two continents, Central America te is technically not a continent. So the two continents that are here, um, Native Americans staying in isolation that long and then being interacted with by the early ethnographers starting in the basically the 1600s and 1700s. Um, the stories that were told to those early ethnographers pretty much uh, are the ones that I'm talking about here. There are some more recent ones from the 1960s and 70s that I'm including here, but pretty much uh, starting in the 1970s, in the late 70s, a lot of this knowledge disappeared. You may be familiar, for example, with the so-called Sundance, yes. uh, that ritual, and the sacred arrows. I actually had the sacred arrows in our house, the Cheyenne sacred arrows that go back to 500 BC or so. Uh, I got to hold them. We had a shaman living in our house with his family for 30 days. This was back in the 1980s when I got a lot of this information, uh, they had um, changed by their belief system, their, their rituals had changed. The U.S. government literally outlawed a lot of their most sacred rituals. And what was left after they outlawed them were the sacred arrow rituals, and which is relatively new. It's not, it's not an ancient ritual. And the Sundance, which is not a truly ancient ritual. The Sundance was brought in to replace a ritual called the Massam Ceremony, which was outlawed by the U.S. government. They weren't allowed to do it anymore. And the Massam is the one where you really get a lot of this information from. Uh, it was done by the Plains tribes. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad. Uh, a lot of this information is really hard to get. There are tons of books you can go look up books on Native American mythology and legends, and you'll get all the children's stories. You'll read about spiders. You'll read about the wolf. You'll read about tricksters and all that. Uh, you'll read the creation stories. Not a single one of those is what I told you. If you want to read what I told you, you have to get the ethnographer books, which were not written for children or just people that had an interest in the legends. Uh, it's actually kind of sad to me. But on the other hand, it actually preserved a lot of their knowledge. Uh, their their knowledge was preserved. But again, we don't know as much about other cultures. Gobekli Tepe, complete mystery. 10,000, you know, it's 12,000 years old. 
what they believe in. Well, they believed in building big buildings and they had a lot of animals carved in there. And they definitely thought those animals were important. And it was a it was a ritualistic spiritual site. That's about it. We don't know anything else. So what was the 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 the, the intent in this communication? What knowledge, if any, was being transferred from uh can I call them thought beings or what, what, what do we, these entities? Well, they're not thought beings uh, in, in that, unless you're thinking like psychic projection, which was a term that a couple of UFO people put out many years ago, where people would think about something and it would physically manifest. Right. That might be a thought being. Uh, these are entities that you are not creating, but you are interacting with. You are basically calling them to you. They are their rituals are literally calling these entities to appear. That's what the rituals are, are done. Now, the whole idea of plasmas that we believe that plasmas are the energy that these beings use or these entities use to form themselves. And I'm not sure that I should even call them entities, plural. And in fact, I don't believe that there are multiple entities. I think it is one. It is one very massive thing that interacts all over the place pretty much all the time. It's kind of like the Internet. Is the Internet a single entity or is it multiple entities or what, what exactly is it? We all interact with this thing all the time, but it's all interconnected. Everything is connected with the all things are connected was the title of my first half of my book. And that's where I ended that all things are connected. And I use the internet as an example in it. The first book that I wrote about this particularly was called people of the web. And I wrote it in 1990, right after the internet was, was developed and people said, Oh, it's about the internet. And I said, no, it's about the web that native Americans said, native Americans have said, everything is a web. It's an interconnected web. And it was made by a spider, which is also a trickster. Spider is both creation and a trickster at the same time. It creates beautiful stuff, but if you get ensnared by it, it can kill you. That's, that's the truth. It has good and has bad qualities. But the thing about a web is if you touch a spider web anywhere and you jiggle a little bit or you vibrate it a little, the entire thing vibrates. That vibration goes everywhere in the web. Sounds like and string theory. Exactly. And that's where Andrew went in the second half of the book. Exactly. Native Americans use that that idea about the web. They use that and said the whole thing, a spider. It's like a spider made it all and everything is connected. Everything, no matter what it is, we're all connected into a whole. We just don't know it's a whole. We can't perceive that it's a whole, although there are special conditions when you can. I call those things synchronicity. Carl Jung called it that. Uh, it's a special type of awareness. It doesn't last very long. And the truth is, we're not equipped to see all the connections of everything all the time. That would drive us mad. We are, we are built to have very limited awareness all the time. Focus on what's around us all the time uh, in order for survival. You can't survive if you don't focus. I've just got about a minute here before we break yep. at the top of the hour. Gregory Little stays with us into the next hour as well. Origins of the Gods, co-authored by Andrew Collins. And so let's talk a little bit about, and then we'll continue after the uh, the break, obviously, about how human progress was affected by these communications with 
transdimensionals? Well, that is a that's another really good question. I believe that uh, one thing it did how how we were affected by it. That's why we started building all the sacred sites. That's why the pyramids were built. Uh, it's why Gobekli Tepe was built. It's why North America, all of North America, Canada, the United States, there's loads of mounds in Canada. There are loads of um, what are called medicine wheels, rock wheel formations in Canada. They're not as famous as the ones in the United States, but I'll bet in Canada they are. <clears throat> so they taught us or we learned a lot about these things through these interactions. Beyond that, uh, I think they taught us morals. That is what, that's what the Native Americans tell us, that reverence for uh, animals. They taught us understanding about planting and so on. And then we, Andrew and I do not, um, we don't negate the ancient aliens thing. We both believe that the earth had visitations from aliens. And the reason we believe that is because of Carl Sagan, the greatest skeptic of all time. Uh, and that might be a cool thing to start with when we come back. But we'll do uh, that. Yeah. All right. Stay with us. Gregory will. And again, Origins of the Gods, Kesem Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. My name is Richard Serra. Don't go away. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Ryan White is my live stream producer, and uh, Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Speaking of the live stream, be sure to check out my YouTube and Rumble channels, Strange Planet. All right. This hour, Gregory L. Little stays with us, co-author, along with Andrew Collins of Origins of the Gods, Kesem Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. So uh, we were going to uh, lead off this hour and talk about uh, the great skeptic, Carl Sagan right. and uh, his his belief about uh, you know the ancient alien uh, theory that uh, they uh, they had interacted with ancient civilizations many 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 millennia ago. Yeah, a lot of people refuse to believe that Carl Sagan believed in ancient aliens. Carl Sagan is considered to be the greatest skeptic of all time, uh, respected by everyone, believers, non-believers, everybody like Carl Sagan. Uh, and in 1963, Carl Sagan published an article in the journal Space and Science, 
uh, and it is a peer-reviewed journal. And in that journal article, he calculated the odds of other civilizations existing in our galaxy. And there are lots of them, certainly. Uh, I noticed this week there was a guy that calculated that there were four malevolent civilizations in the galaxy that we really didn't want to interact with. Uh, but anyway, uh, Carl Sagan said that there's definitely loads of them that are much older than us, much more advanced than us, and said it is just obvious that they have to have observed Earth. And he, in his last bit of that article, he did a calculation. And in that calculation, he said that starting around 2 million years ago or so, starting around 2 million years ago, they would have begun visiting us. And up to the present day, they would have visited probably in the order of 10,000 times, 10,000 visits starting 2 million years ago. And he said that 2 million years ago, they wouldn't have been that interested. Humans had not developed very much. Uh, he didn't say that they would be that the same people were coming back and forth for 2 million years, but they were monitoring us definitely and watching what was happening on Earth. And if you divide 2 million by 10,000, you're looking at a visit every 200 years or so. That's basically the average. But he said that starting around at the end of the last ice age, 20,000 years ago or so, they would have started visiting a lot more often. And, and in the article, at the end of the article, he said that he believed that archaeologists should begin looking in the area of ancient Sumeria and look around Baalbek and those areas for evidence that ancient aliens had actually been here. And that is astonishing. I've had people say, no, it can't be. It can't be that Carl Sagan said that, but he did. Now, what's paradoxical in this, and I'm the same way uh, as this, what's paradoxical is that Sagan was immediately asked, so you believe modern UFOs are these aliens? And his answer is no, he didn't believe any of its aliens. <laughs> it sounds almost crazy, but it's not. Uh, what Sagan said is that they're not coming here every day. I mean, how many UFO reports are made on the average of every day? People are seeing dozens, dozens, perhaps dozens. Probably if you go worldwide, it's more than dozens. I mean, there's there's seven and a half billion people on this earth. Uh, there are people on the on in some areas that are outside at night quite a bit and they don't have electric lights, that many lights, and they're seeing it all the time. Uh, but there are lots of them. Uh, there are millions of UFO reports made every year. We also know that 95, at least 95 percent of those are something that can be explained. They're either aircraft that are looked at strangely or weather phenomena uh, could be uh, experimental craft or some sort of meteorological phenomena. Uh, so Sagan believed that he thought that's what most of it was. As far as things like the contactees and the abductees, uh, he was a little more cautious with that. He knew something was going on with it, just like Carl Jung, the great psychologist Carl Jung did, that something really is going on here, but it is not what it appears to be. Whatever it is, it's very deceptive. It's not showing us what it really is. And that's the same thing that Sagan said. And it was, I don't know if it was his last book. It was called Demon Haunted Universe. Uh, Sagan 
knew that there was something very strange going on, and he believed that the paranormal should be looked at. Of course, he thought that the paranormal, everything in it eventually could be explained by physics, that if physics went far enough, it was all eventually explainable. And I do too. I think it's all explainable. So we have three possibly separate things, somehow connected possibly. We've got We've got lights in the sky. We've got ancient aliens and visitations. And then we have these trans-dimensionals that, that um, indigenous people have communicated with. Yeah. Um, that's, that's very good. You're the, I've talked to a lot of people. Uh, you're the only one that I've talked to yet that really picked up that we're we're really trying to it's like the puzzle it's the jigsaw puzzle you're looking at the different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that uh, i gotta commend you on that go ahead all right so i mean how how are they connected or are we just not there yet now well we're not quite to the end of all this let me give you one more piece of the puzzle then one that just has got to sound like it's coming out of the blue what what's the navy saying what is the Navy saying? Yeah, what's the Navy seeing well, the, in all these videos with the Tic Tacs and with uh, I know that some of these are drones that they're looking at. That's pretty much been demonstrated. But some of this doesn't appear to be anything uh, that we have or anything that we know about. What are they saying? Well, I'll just I'll refer back to the recent testimony uh, on May 17th with the uh, deputy director of the, the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence, Scott Bray, I think his name yeah. is. And he kind of created five bins yeah, uh, you know there was uh, the the um, space clutter. I guess is one. He talked about meteorological effects. Uh, he talked about perhaps uh, technology belonging to our adversaries. That's three. Four would be experimental craft of uh, you know made in the good old USA. Uh, and then number five was this you know unknown um, phenomenon. Uh, phenomenon bin. Yeah. So pick your pick one of the five, I guess. Well, back in 2006, when the uh, Ministry of Defense of the UK issued a paper called the Condine Report, spelled C-O-N-D-I-G-N, when they when they issued the Condine Report, they said that all these inexplicable things were caused by plasmas, dusty plasmas and exotic plasmas. And the term exotic simply means that uh, it's something they don't understand. The idea of a dusty plasma is a different thing. So let me go ahead and define plasma because I haven't even got to the Tic Tacs yet uh, and all that. So the dusty plasma, what a plasma is, it's the fourth state of matter. We have solids, liquids, gases. The fourth state of matter is plasmas. Back in the 60s, plasmas were very poorly understood. All they knew is that it's superheated ball of gas. That's, the, that's what they call it, a superheated ball of gas, but it's far more than that. It is a it is a formation that is, in fact, superheated. Absolutely. But when a plasma forms, it becomes electromagnetic. It has a North Pole and a South Pole. It usually spins. It sometimes flattens out. Uh, It creates a shell around it, literally a shell, almost like a cell wall is in a human cell in our body. It forms a, a wall on the exterior. A dusty plasma, because it's electromagnetic in nature, it begins to pull in dust, cosmic cosmic dust, physical dust that's in the atmosphere. It pulls in as much as it can, and it's already got air in there. So it is something that's physical. Uh, 
it begins to rip all the electrons out of whatever the atoms are there. And the electrons start bouncing into each other, but they're encapsulated in this wall, in this electromagnetic wall. As long as the thing has energy coming to it, it can sustain itself. And some of them last quite a while. Sounds like a uh, tornado. Almost, yeah. So the Condine report, which was which the Freedom of Information Act got it released in 2006, it says point blank that these are plasmas, that what is being seen are plasmas, that yes, they can be dangerous. Also, that people that get too close to these plasmas have neurological effects, lots of neurological effects. And up there in Canada at Laurentian University, there was a professor who I interacted with for many, many years. I'm, I live in Memphis, Tennessee. He actually got his degrees at the University of Tennessee. His name was Michael Persinger at Laurentian oh, yes. University, created the God Helmet. That's what he's right. best known for. Persinger did research starting in the 70s, the same time that I started doing research. We were both, both basically the same age. Uh, in fact, he referenced some of my work. I referenced tons of his, and we interacted a few times because we had a very similar idea. Uh, Persinger believed that uh, UFOs were electromagnetic forms and that people were interacting with it neurologically, that when you get close to it, the electromagnetic field influences your brain chemistry, which the brain is, uh, it's biochemical, but it's a, a electrochemical interactions going on. And magnetic fields do in fact influence it. So that was Persinger's idea. Persinger never thought that the plasma fields were alive, uh, that they had intelligence or anything like that. Uh, but Persinger- viewing them that interaction then, are we imbuing them with intelligence? Well, that's an interesting idea. Uh, that is what uh, psychic projection might say that we're doing. Almost sounds like a poltergeist activity. We are interacting with them and we are uh, determining the direction of the experience often, uh, but we aren't creating them per se. We're not doing that. Persinger was quite an interesting fellow. Um, some of the research that he did has resulted in, I don't, I can't, well, they're weapons, weapons research. That's the best way to put it. Uh, for example, Persinger in his lab created a electromagnetic, really, it's like a little tiny ball of energy that could literally put words in people's heads. You could beam words into someone's head. He would have undergraduate students sit in a laboratory, basically a Faraday cage where it's copper encased. Uh, so there'd be no outside influence from the outside electromagnetic fields. And he could force people to make choices. He put them in an experimental test where they had to make a series of choices he could have them make the choice he wanted by simply beaming in very specific electromagnetic fields. He could have them hear words. Well, the military has created a device that can beam. It's over, it goes over a mile. You can't see it. Uh, it is a, they use lasers. People always think of a laser having a visible light beam coming out. Well, it's only because they're using the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum with that particular laser. You can have lasers that have no visible light coming out at all, but they're using other frequencies 
in the electromagnetic field. So uh, they have this device that they can literally aim at somebody miles away and the person will hear words in their head speaking to them, words speaking to them. Voice the to same, skull technology. Which is what? Voice to skull technology. This is uh, Well, that, uh, yeah, you know, that's something schizophrenics uh, have been reporting for years that they hear voices in their head. Right, or so-called targeted individuals who think. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that this and Persinger did, I think what he developed that in the 1980s. Persinger did a lot of these kinds of things. Well, Persinger also had people in this same Faraday cage that had UFO experiences. They're just they're sitting in a comfortable reclining chair. They have a UFO experience. This was even before the God helmet that, that he developed. Uh, the God helmet, he got much more specific. He could focus on really finite areas of the brain. Uh, to create different experiences. So we know there's an interaction going on here. So the military, and I tell in the book, I tell the story that I worked for the Office of Naval Research for two years on a grant. Uh, and the grant was I traveled around the country to Navy bases, and I did testing on U.S. Navy pilots, uh, on helicopter pilots, uh, jet pilots, uh, and prop plane pilots, all three. Uh, did it for again two years. It was I was young at the time. I was 21 years old when I started it, uh, and I was just a research assistant. Didn't even know what we were doing. To tell you the truth, I'd go to these places. We'd go in. Uh, they would call in the pilots one after another. We'd put them in the Faraday cage. We'd hook up devices to them. Do this testing. The results went into a machine. We carried the machine with us. Uh, it was actually a cone that you held up to your head. Anyway. Um, uh, in going to the Office of Naval Research's uh, primary research facility in Pensacola, Florida, I interacted with some of their young people like me. They had a lot of young people. I was in graduate school in psychology at the time, uh, and they were in the Navy. And so we sat there while the big colonel who I was working for, uh, he was he was the head of Fort Knox's uh, research and uh, research facility. Uh, he went into the back to talk to the higher ups. I don't know. I don't know what anything went on there. So I stayed in the front, talked to all the young guys. And we started talking about the research that we were doing, which we call I wonder what if research. <laughs> and it is research that you do uh, because you've gotten something you want to study, maybe a drug. That's what I was doing at the time. I was studying drugs in psychopharmacology. And I would tell them, yeah, we got this drug called uh, fencyclidine in. And I didn't know what in the world. They said the DEA sent it to us, to our lab, and said, do some research on this. So I injected a rat with it, put the rat on my desk, and just went back to doing whatever I was doing and watched the rat fall over and run around the circle. That's true. That's a true story. And that's, I wonder what it, if research, the very first thing. I wonder what will happen if I inject this rat with a small dose of PCP. That's what it is. Fencyclidine is PCP. So they started telling me about their I wonder what if research. And they do a lot of I wonder what if research. And then a few years later, it was more than a few years. It was 1989, I believe. Uh, my wife and I went to Pensacola, Florida to look at the Gulf Breeze UFO, the Gulf Breeze light, which we saw. It had appeared, we saw it the 10th straight night. Everybody that was there, there were 108 people in the park that watched this thing that night. And they said the crowd's actually a little smaller tonight because it was in the middle of the week. Uh, there had been four or five hundred people there over the weekend, including film crews and so on. 
They knew what time the light was going to appear. It was like 9, 10 exactly. They said, it's going to occur any minute. They pointed, they knew the spot. They said, right there is where it's going to occur. So it popped on. What was it? It was a, it started out as a red light. It looked uh, about double the size that Venus would in the sky. And then close, I, I took a picture of it, but I was looking around and it was astonishing watching this. And then they said, now watch, it's going to pop. What it then did was it expanded its size about 10 times. It went from this round red light that dot in the sky that just a solid red dot about twice the size of Venus to about the size of the moon. And it was pure white, pure white. And they said, now watch it. It's going to flip off and it's going to get sparkles. And then it's like somebody turned a light switch off. All the interior white went out and all around the edges, it had little tiny white sparkles right around the edges. It lasted three or four seconds. And then boom, it was gone. And I wrote this in a book that came out in 1990 uh, and repeated it in 94, set it in this new book. And I said that I was certain in looking around, the Office of Naval Research is doing a study here, wondering what how people are going to react to seeing this object in the sky. I believe it's a plasma object that they were creating. I believe it comes directly from Michael Persinger's research. I believe Persinger was funded probably by uh, contracts, not necessarily directly from the military, but by other military contractors, because uh, he already had a lab set up. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, I did military contract work myself through the University of Memphis, uh, like I said, when I was a graduate student. Uh, but I think the military has done lots and lots of research on this. And I think that's what the Tic Tacs are. So we've gone finally to the another piece of the jigsaw puzzle. So if you go to the Internet and you look up Forbes, F-O-R-B-E-S, and look up Navy uh, decoy, Forbes Navy decoy patent, those words, what you will see is Forbes magazine about a year and a half ago found that the U.S. Navy patented something very, very interesting. And I know we'll get to that. And people are going to love this. I, I know my listeners will love it. I'm not sure about the people at MUFON. <laughs> Whether they're love this. <laughs> well, there's something real too going on here. It's not that. True yeah, it's not all. Yeah, it's a True jigsaw enough. puzzle. True enough. Yeah. All right. Gregory Little stays with us, co-author of Origins of the Gods. Back with more in a minute. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Wow, I am enjoying this conversation with uh, Gregory Little, Origins of the Gods, co-authored along with uh, Andrew Collins. Plasma. Uh, it seems to me that... Um, and I've had many conversations with a crop circle filmmaker named Patty Greer, and she talks a lot about plasma and, and the, the research of Lefty Levengood, who talked about the role of plasma vortices in the formation of crop circles. Based on what you've uh, told me, I mean, does that make sense that plasma vortices could be involved in crop circle formation? Well, yes. The the early ones, uh, there was a fella, I wrote about uh, the 
in a, the 1990 book, People of the Web, I had a chapter on crop circles since they started in the 80s. Uh, and I found out about them. Uh, I've been over there. Uh, Andrew Collins took me around to a lot of the places, took me to the place where they have, there's a, there's a, uh, there's canals in England and there is a, uh, right in the middle of where all the crop circles take place. Uh, there is a canal and a pub there, a tavern that has thousands of crop circle pictures. Uh, and we got to meet some of the, uh, alleged makers. Uh, when it very first started back in the 80s, I interacted with a fellow by the name of George Terrence Meaden, who was the editor of the Journal of Meteorology. Uh, Meaden had studied them. And the early crop circles and the ones that you don't hear about today are fairly simple. They're pretty much a perfect circle. Sometimes they have an outer band, but they're, they're fairly simple. Sometimes there's three or four of them. They're in patterns like that. And I concluded, like Meaden did, that yes, those formations are probably made of plasma vortices or vortex of swirling energy. However, uh, based on what I learned through Andrew and through other people, some of the more complex forms are not made by plasma vortex. Uh, if you want to believe that aliens made them, that's fine. I'm talking to the listeners. If people really want to believe that, that's fine. I don't, you know, people can believe whatever they want. I'm giving mine here, basically, uh, giving my beliefs, and I respect others, too. Uh, but some, there are makers that have at least claimed to make them. Uh, if you go to the right places in England at the right time, you can uh, see some of these people uh, at some of these uh, specialized pubs. They'll, you'll have to have people point you to the right ones uh, where they come in and, and meet and so on and bring their photographs and, and post them. Uh, so, yeah, I think some of the formations of crop circles are made by plasma vortices. Absolutely. They do form naturally in nature. Uh, they form during earthquakes. Uh, pretty much right when the earthquake takes place. After an earthquake, you don't see them for a while because all of the strain, tectonic strain, tectonic strain is when uh, two big fractures are pushing together very hard. Just like I said earlier, take two crystals and rub them together. You're causing tectonic strain. When you push two crystals together, you're causing internal strain in it. That causes the release of electricity and ions and energy. Uh, so yeah, uh, but by, if you want to go back to the Tic Tacs and all that, so uh, that, that's where this is heading. So for the Tic Tac piece of it, again, if you Google or DuckDuckGo, whatever you use, Google Forbes, F-O-R-B-E-S, which is the name of a magazine, uh, and patent in U.S. Navy and uh, decoy, you will see the Navy has patented a couple, just a year and a half ago, patented a laser-based plasma generator that creates plasma formations in the air that are picked up by radar that can be seen on infrared that can move, you know, there's nobody in them. So it's kind of like pointing a flashlight around. If you look at the beam of a flashlight, it, you know, you, it looks like, oh, it's impossible angles. No, you're just moving around the light. Uh, there's nobody in there. But if you think there's somebody in there, yeah, a human being couldn't 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 live with that. It would but crush and those G's, right? Yeah, you can't withstand. But there are no G's. There's uh, that there are no G's here. It's simply moving, moving energy is what it is. 
So the Navy developed this thing. And what I really believe, this is my belief and my belief only, is I believe that a lot of what has gone on here is not the Navy that is testing this out on themselves. The Navy has contractors and it's dark money, uh, black ops. And I believe that there is uh, that they were testing and still are testing our radar systems to see how our new radar systems react to this, how our infrared and ultraviolet uh, gun sites interact with it and what they see and what the pilots see, what the pilots think about it, what the people in these ships think about it, how they interact with it. If they shot a missile at it, nobody's going to get hurt. They didn't have, you know, I don't think they were armed to begin with uh, the Nimitz. I don't think the pilots were armed. No, they it might have it's been. a training exercise, I believe. Yeah, just a oh. training exercise. I think they were simply trying to see how they reacted. I don't think anybody on the ship knew anything about it. I think it was done surreptitiously by uh, a contractor who was uh, under contract to do it and see how see how they react. That's what I believe. So I think a lot of this stuff is our own technology that the military in general doesn't know about yet. And then that's a piece of the puzzle. It's one that's going to, you know, a lot of people will say that's absurd. It's not true. But just look up. Uh, Forbes magazine wrote an article about it. If you want to read about these, the other things I talked about, uh, about the la- there's a laser that they have that, again, you can't see the beam, but it causes an explosion on the skin from miles away. It's a weapon that is used from and they they can dial up the strength of it, either make it really powerful or less powerful. Right, Some of the speculated that that was used in the Gulf War or in the desert storm against the Iraqi uh, soldiers, I think. I'm, I'm sure that it was. Uh, they also have some that will make you throw up physically. There is a frequency. Persinger did a lot. Of, there's a there's an electromagnetic frequency that causes an area uh, in the brainstem to react, and you physically throw up. You can't help it because it's it's affecting that one area of the brainstem in the brain where you have the gag reflex and you literally throw up. And it was a battlefield weapon designed to throw out a huge beam of this because soldiers on the other side can't fight very well when they're throwing up. That's right. That's, and it's incredible how many of these weapons, the Navy, the Navy and the army have these cool names like pickle. There's a pickle. There's a Skype. There's a scuffles. There's a Skype. I mean, all the, they're all acronyms for all these bizarre devices that they have, but they have loads of them now. There's a list of at least 10. If you want to read some really cool articles about them, right. look, look up, uh, uh, it's, mecha- it's a mechanics, uh, mechanics magazines. I've, I popular have, mechanics, uh, popular yeah, mechanics. popular mechanics. You can read these in popular mechanics and also in Forbes magazine. Right. Put and up non lethal weaponry. Yes which can be also lethal. They can dial it to make it lethal if necessary. Absolutely. All right. So um, we're covering a lot of ground here and it's all absolutely fascinating. Uh, Let's bring it back to the ancient astronaut theory. You say that that, the modern ancient astronaut theory actually began in the 1700s. Yes. Well, the first contactee, the first contactee, Uh, And the first person that I know of, the first individual that I know of who was told by the entities or the 
people from outer space that that talked to him for 28 years. <laughs> the people that talked to him told him that we've been doing this for all time, that we've been coming here for all time and interacting with you people. And so that's the ancient astronaut theory. The ancient astronaut theory is that ancient astronauts came here and interacted with. So it, it really started in 1743. 1743, long time ago. And it was a very famous scientist. His name is Emanuel Swedenborg. Emanuel Swedenborg. There is a society, Swedenborgian society. Swedenborg's uh, burial crypt is in Uppsala, Sweden, uh, in this national cathedral. It's incredible. You can read a lot about Swedenborg there. Very, he was a scientist, he was a nobleman, uh, he was a mathematician, one of the most famous people in the world at the time. Uh, and he, I believe he was 56 years old when he started his interaction with him. And he was in England. He was in London. Uh, when Swedenborg traveled, he traveled alone. He didn't want people with him. And he traveled secretly. And at the time, he had just he was an official with the Swedish government. But he went to England, really, to visit some friends. Uh, he enjoyed the company of ladies. Uh, that's one of the things that he did. And this is a lot of this information is in Swedenborg's own journal and in some of the books about him. But he went to England. He was eating in this tavern in a side room of a tavern and they knew him. They kept him isolated from everybody else. So he was alone in this side room in a tavern. And then he started eating. And then a man materialized in the chair right across from him in a corner. He was in a corner table. He was at a, a corner table and right in the corner chair, a man just physically materialized in front of him. And it frightened Swedenborg. And he looked at the man. And this is about as inauspicious as it gets. The man said, don't eat too much. <laughs> that was it. Was and this it, corroborated by any other witnesses? Or? No, there were, no, it was written down in his journal. All this is in Sw Swedenborg kept a meticulous journal his entire life. Uh, and people don't know that the, his history of his early life, Swedenborg saw lights and entities in his early life. Uh, I mean, he, he was literally haunted by lights appearing in his room. And that's why he went into science. Swedenborg was the most famous scientist in the world at the time. I mean, he was really. I wanted to understand what was happening to him. Absolutely. Gregory Little stays with us. Origins of the Gods, co-authored with Andrew Collins. Before we get forget, um, how do we get a copy? Uh, well, it's available everywhere. Um, obviously, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any online seller has it. Uh, it's also an audio. If you're a truck driver, man, you've got 10 and a half hours of uh, listening there. Uh, and I actually bought the audio myself. I was interested. It was great. I can't pronounce most of the stuff in Andrew's half of the book because it's all, to me, it's all foreign. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that's where I learned how to pronounce a lot of the stuff. But it's everywhere. Uh, it's in uh, Barnes & Noble stores and, again, online. Uh, and if you want to find me, just Google my name. He he keeps saying uh, it's Gregory L. Little. It, put that in. Put Greg Little in and Google that or whatever. You'll find football players. But if you put Gregory L., you'll find me. <laughs> well, fantastic. And uh, yeah. we have a lot of truckers that listen to the show. We love yeah. the truckers. They love the show. And, yes, they'll – the idea that they could uh, listen while they uh, they're on the long haul, oh yeah, uh, fantastic. All right, so we were talking about this um, uh, Swedenborg. Swedenborg from the 1740s, one of the world's most prominent scientists at the time, and he had, uh, well, he saw entities, he saw lights in the sky. That uh, was a child, yeah, right. And then in England, he had this person appear to him, just a man, and that was the start of the story. 
that was the beginning of it. And that, that's not, you know, that's nothing incredible. But here's what happened. Uh, Swedenborg immediately dropped everything and ran back to his hotel room. There is this part is true. There was a disturbance in his room that night. We know that the police were called. Um, according to some of the books written about it, the man appeared to him that night. The Swedenborg's only own journal doesn't say that Swedenborg's journal said that he had a bad night and that a doctor came and the police were there. Uh, and they it, the reason they came is, is that he was very famous and he was an official of the Swedish government. So the hotel called a doctor in who sedated him because uh, he was so upset. And then the police came and stayed at his door through the night. The weird stuff happened the next night. That's what's in Swedenborg's journal. So the next night he was in the he was in his hotel room. And what is in his journal and in a book? Uh, well, he wrote several books about all this. Uh, but what happened then is the room filled with light and there was like a big ball of light. The man was in the middle of it and the and the lights went out and the man pulled the chair up and sat down. Swedenborg was in the bed and Swedenborg said the man looked totally like every other man, except he had on these giant purple robes. He had a giant purple robe on like a magistrate. Yes. And he said the man told him that I am going to open your mind. So for the next 28 years, think about that, 28 years, Swedenborg was inundated by visits from multiple beings who he said are physical that other people saw. I haven't read anything where somebody said, yeah, I met Swedenborg's beings. I never, never read that, but it's in his books. Uh, he said for 28 years, they came to him repeatedly. He said they were physically real. He touched them. They stayed with him for hours at a time, and they took him for rides in a craft to other planets. He saw that Mars and Venus and Saturn and the, the moons of Saturn and Jupiter uh, and Uranus were all inhabited by people like us and that there were cities on those planets like there were cities here. And he said that they were the angels of old. They told him that they were the angels that came, that all the old biblical reports of angels were them, that they did once live on Earth, and now they live on these other planets. They died and, I guess, reincarnated on these other planets. So Swedenborg wrote bunch several books about this. One is called Earths in the Universe, because he said in that book, that the universe is just populated with planets like Earth, that they are all over the place, everywhere in the universe, and it's almost countless, and that they had been visiting the Earth for a long, long time, and that actually is probably the very first contactee. Well, we're almost out of time for this segment, but yeah, why wouldn't we just, dis couldn't we just dismiss Dr. Peter Swedenberg as an eccentric, to be polite, or just bonkers? Well, nobody has actually dismissed him completely. What they've said is, even the Swedenborg Society has said, that, oh, it, it was a spiritual thing, which Swedenborg himself at the end, when he published all this, he said, I think that it's probably spiritual. 
That's what he said at the very end. I had this these spiritual encounters. Very, very few skeptics really want to accept Swedenborg because Swedenborg remains so famous and so important in literature. Uh, they don't want to accept the fact that he was a UFO contactee. That's what he was. But the entities lied to him. There are no, I'm sorry, there are no cities on the moon. There are no cities on Mars that we know of. The tricksters. Uh, Yeah, it's a trickster. The trickster lied to him. Now, there were probably some things that they told Swedenborg that's true. There were a series of other things, books that were done that happened in this exact same way that Swedenborg was visited. Uh, And we know that people got accurate information. Uh, I've even taken people and compared that to people like Edgar Casey, the psychic in America, the psych- America's most famous psychic, and Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc had the same kind of experience. Joan of Arc saw uh, light beings, uh, and it led to the same place. A few minutes remain with Gregory L. Little, co-author along with Andrew Collins of Origins of the Gods, Kesem Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. Boy, we haven't even, I mean, not even scratched the surface. Uh, I know that's a cliche, but it's so true. Um, we are sort of madly off in, in all directions, but we're just we're we're looking at different pieces of this immense jigsaw puzzle. And uh, we've been talking about uh, plasma. We've been talking about how they relate, how that relates to lights in the sky. Uh, we've been talking about the shamanic tradition of uh, communicating with transdimensional intelligences. We were just talking about uh, Dr. Peter Swedenberg, a famous scientist from the 17th century, who uh, may have been the first um, alien contactee or even alien abductee. And uh, you you were saying that this, uh, it it sort of echoes what what happened to uh, Joan of Arc. Yeah. Exactly. As long as Joan did what they told him, told her to do, and it worked out exactly as they told her. But as soon as she went a little further, it all it all went to hell, so to speak. Uh, it, it didn't go well. Uh, so as long as she did what they told him her to do, same thing is true with Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey um, did a lot of psychic readings. Most people don't know that 70 percent of Casey's psychic readings were on health. And those have been studied by physicians. There are loads of journal articles and medical journals that have studied what Edgar Casey said. And his health readings are all very accurate. They're 80 some percent accurate. That's what all the studies say. And they're not saying that 20 percent or 15 percent that isn't is wrong. They just don't have enough information to figure out was he correct or not. So when he was talking about maybe, you know, uh, accessing the Akashic record for this information, was he getting this information then supposedly from these uh, transdimensional intelligence? uh, I would say absolutely. And as long as he's the original, the original interaction he had with the entities, he had two interactions with what he called an angel, both of them in balls of light, both of them very famous. And in the first one, the angel uh, basically told him, you're going to be a healer. You're going to mainly heal children. And as long as he stuck with that, the information was pretty accurate. And I'm in the Casey organization. Uh, my wife was the uh, chairperson of the board of trustees of it for several years and, and on the board for five or six years before that. Uh, so we're, we're very much into it. But the truth is, Edgar Casey was wrong about some things, not health stuff. As long as he stuck with what the with what the the deal sort of he had with the angel, it worked out okay, but he's gone. He went into other areas. Some of it is obviously accurate, but some of it's not. That's where the trickster element comes in. 
there is an un- when you're interacting with this force, you have to always be careful that there is an element that will mislead you. And if your motives aren't clear, if your motives aren't good, you'll be misled. That is what Edgar Casey himself said when his readings were wrong. They would ask him in a reading, why didn't this pan out? And he'd say, our motives are bad. And most of those were about when people were looking for money or gold or treasure. Uh, those didn't work very well. So I call this stuff, I, I kind of summarize it all. Again, it's a big jigsaw puzzle. And there's all there's something in this jigsaw puzzle that's going to make everybody mad. <laughs> there's something in it that's going to make everybody go, oh, yeah, I like that. So it's a big jigsaw puzzle of a lot of things going on. But I call this the, the essential core of it. Time, T-I-I-M-E, time being, same thing. And Andrew's N being, same thing. But time stands for transient intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. Transient because they never stay around. They never, whatever these things are, they don't hang around. I mean, with the contactees, some of them have literally said, oh, a UFO landed. Well, did they run into the house and get on the phone and call their buddies and they all came over and they brought their cameras and they banged on the side of it? No, it only hangs around for a brief time. It's very, very temporary, whatever these things are. They're temporary. It's an intrusion. It's something that does not seem to belong in our normal reality. It intrudes into reality very suddenly. So it's a transient intrusion of intelligent manifesting energy. And we say that's intelligent because I'll go to the most, most incredible articles from physicists ever. Now, Andrew goes back in time and talks about Baum and some others that said that plasmas appear to be intelligent. But in 2007, a group of six physicists published an article in the Journal of New Physics, a peer-reviewed journal, and they said that plasmas have all the characteristics of a living entity, that they appear to be intelligent, they can interact with us, that they multiply, they form what looks like DNA in their internal structure. They have filmed this. You can actually probably find some of it online. The DNA, they form a double helix on the inside. The double helix splits apart just like it does in human DNA and forms two plasmas or two cells in in human uh, physiology. Uh, The weak ones die off. A weak structure dies off, just like with the way evolution occurs with us. But they say they have intelligence. And they said, if we could sustain the energy for all intents and purposes, they're alive, just like us. Almost sounds like a hologram. It almost sounds like a hologram. It does sound like a hologram. But remember, a plasma is physical. And just like the air around us, there's something physical. The air, it's like we're in an ocean of air all the time. The air is physical. So when a plasma forms in air, it takes all the molecules that are in the air, all the oxygen, nitrogen, boron, well, whatever else is in the air, you know, most of it's oxygen and nitrogen. But it takes those and begins to rip off all of the electrons from them, and it pulls in anything else it can because it's electromagnetic. And so it becomes a physical object. And it's driven by energy. We are physical objects driven by energy. You remove our energy, we die instantly. We're gone. Right. That's what they call our spirit, right? That electrical energy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then I just got a couple minutes here and I'll have to have you back on uh, because this is just amazing. But um, very quickly, if we could, (laughs) if it's possible, and that is, does... 
does what you've been talking about, plasma uh, vortices and, and so forth, th- does that explain much of what we consider paranormal events like hauntings and so forth? All of it. All of it. The weird stuff like that, plasma stuff. It, uh, once you get away from hoaxes, you know, hoaxes are a piece of the puzzle too, because we know they occur. So once you get away the hoaxes, and if you're talking about something legitimate, yes, plasmas would. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the question, Andrew, Andrew has a much better way of talking about this than I do. But Andrew says that to him, the real underlying question is, uh, some people might think we're saying that the plasmas are the entity that it's the underlying intelligence. And the so it may be that the plasma is simply the medium for whatever the intelligence is to move into. You follow what I'm saying there? Right. Like our human, like the, the human body. Of, the, the essence of what we are is not our, our shell. Uh, right. So it's, it would be the same. And yeah, we really don't know exactly. You know, we just know oh, we have energy and we call it spirit or spiritual, whatever, a soul, we say all that. Uh, but we don't have any way to explain that in physics other than saying that we know that, we, that we're energy beings. We know we have energy. So, and I don't know, I, I think that uh, this is all things are, all things are related again. All things are connected. Uh, the plasma is everywhere in the universe. The universe is mainly compi- comprised of plasma. It's what's between the sun and us. It's what's in outer space. It's everywhere. Most of the, most of the matter in the entire universe is plasma. That's what it is. So uh, it goes back to the Native American thing. I kind of think of it all like there is an underlying intelligence. Native Americans call it spirit, the great spirit, spiritual energy that has its own intentions and purpose and all. But I think that uh, all of the everything is imbued with the same thing that it all has a form of intelligence, even a rock. You know, some people say it's animism. It's not animism. I'm not saying a rock is alive, but I think that whatever is encapsulated in a rock is spiritual energy. It's spirit, just like the Native Americans said it was. Uh, and we can't, we don't interact with it much. We don't get much from it, but I think everything is is the same way. Uh, and I I don't know that, there is something that each one of these entities, like the entities that saw Swedenborg, are they different from the entities that saw Edgar Casey or the entities that interacted with um, Joan of Arc or the contactees? Or is it all manifesting from the same basic source? I think it all manifests from the same source. Wow. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a brief introduction of Origins of the Gods, Andrew Collins, Gregory L. Little. Gregory, what a pleasure. We'll have to do this again. Thank you so much. I thank you. Uh, Good luck to you. And yeah, we'll do it again sometime. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Carlos and Ryan back next week with a brand new program. Hope it'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known, which you hear in the dark speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.